Hello, people. Today's episode, it's going to be a special interview with my good friend Phil Brickle. Phil will be looking at the stand uh, for the Labour Party as an MP in the next general election. He and I have become mates uh, over time. So I've decided to interview him about the direction of the Labour Party, our historical leaders from uh, Clem Attlee all the way to Keir Starmer. Then we're going to have a discussion about the issues of the Labour Party in terms of health, education, welfare reform, tax reform. Uh, that will be the second half, of the, the second uh, second third of the podcast. And then the final third of the podcast, this will be a 90 minute episode. We'll be discussing precisely how through the issues and through our leaders, can the Labour Party navigate an effective direction to power that we have to show what we're for, not just what we're against. And we have to show our philosophy and our ideas more effectively. So he's taking his time. Oh dear, this is rather reprehensible. Um, but yeah, like I said, this so we're going to be looking initially at the leaders, that with the first 30 minutes. So Clem Attlee, Hugh Gates Skull, Howard Wilson, Jim Callahan, Michael Foote, uh, Neil Kinnock, John Smith, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Ed Miliband, Jeremy Corbyn, Keir Starmer. Then we're going to look at the issues of health, education, tax reform, welfare reform, defence, um, foreign policy. Then we're going to look at how to incorporate that into a successful party vision for the next Labour government. Jolly good. Oh, by the way, James and Michael not here, but I'll explain that in a second. So whilst Phil's getting loaded on, I'm explaining to the good listeners that James is currently in London at the moment to the good listeners, so therefore he won't be able to join us, and Michael is too busy. So for us, going to be a straight one-on-one interview, which should be jolly good. Hello, Phil. Hi, Dad. How are you doing? I'm all right. I was explaining to the good listeners the format of the podcast and why James and Michael have decided not to join us this week. Um Basically, so the format's going to be the first half an hour of the podcast, we're going to be discussing about Labour's leaders. So from Clem Attlee all the way to Keir Starmer. Second half, 30 minutes, we'll be looking at the issues. So tax reform, welfare reform, education, the health service, uh, foreign affairs. And then the third half, so that's from 8 o'clock on, 7.30 onwards, we'll be looking specifically at how we can incorporate our policies and our spirits into a successful vision for the Labour government, for an, a vic- Labour victory. Right, looking forward to it. Right, jolly good. Okay, let's start from the top. Let's start with Clement Attlee. So, okay, there we go. Right, so Clem Attlee, of course, was Winston's deputy. For this first third, we're just going to be evaluating leaders and evaluating our personal view on them in terms of the successful nature of them, but also in terms of their philosophy and ideas. So, of course, Clem Attlee was um, Winston's deputy prime minister. He was notably at the MP for Limehouse as famous that Clem Attlee divided his entire philosophy from Limehouse, that the poor, the unemployed, etc. He also had people like Herbert Morrison and Ira Bevan in the Labour Party cabinet at the time, very strong, powerful figures. And it was famous that when Clem Attlee had won in the 45 election, where he got 397 seats to Winston's 198 MPs, that was the highest Labour majority ever, 239 seats. So if we look at the record of Attlee, you have the NHS, the welfare state, unemployment insurance, the housing programme, you had child benefit, you had these advances in the liberal agenda of of the Lloyd George. So how would you evaluate the Attlee premiership overall then? Well, I think think most people who... um... 
who look at prime ministers through the 20th century would say that, you know, in many ways, the Attlee government was one of the most radical, if not most transformational um, that we've ever experienced. I mean, its anchor policy, as you, you well know, is the implementation of, you know, for the first time, a publicly funded um, free at the point of use national health service. Um, but, but also um, a, a radical house building program, which um, after the war and after the mass bombing of many British cities, for the first time really looked again at uh, municipal housing and the building of housing for those who'd been bombed out of it and were vulnerable and required decent quality homes. But I think also it's not just looking at the... Um, it's not just looking at the domestic agenda for the Atlee government, it's also its long-standing foreign policy um, achievements, whether that be uh, the founding of NATO, whether that be um, taking a strong anti-communist line um, across, uh, across Europe and elsewhere, but also standing firm to those values that Atlee and his counterparts in that coalition government you mentioned or fought so strongly for when working with with Churchill uh, and across party lines to defeat Hitler. I agree with that. I think if there were three prime ministers who've been radically transformational since the war, it'd be Clement Attlee Mar and Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair. But Clement Attlee was specifically one of the greatest because if you look at his domestic point of view, yes, it was focused on beating unemployment, building enough homes so we could, after the war, which all bombed out, we have 200,000 homes a year being built. It was the free funded National Health Service, publicly funded, free at the point of NHS. But if you look at foreign policy, you had the founding of NATO, fighting in Korea, you had that, you had working with treatment on anti-communism perpetrating around Europe. And you, but the, I think the big failure in the Attlee leadership was Britain not joining your, the European community. As it used to be called the European Coal and Steel Community, it was meant to be called, where it was after the war, because Winston Churchill obviously was the United States of Europe, that when Attlee come in, there was this plan to get the European Coal and Steel Community, it was, it was called the Schumann Plan. And Attlee and Herbert Morrison had stalled so much that we basically forgot we'd missed the train. So I think if we look at a lot of Yatley's successes, I think that was one of his few failures, was the fact that had Britain been in there from the start in the ECSC, got it right, then Britain could have been a major driving force in Europe. I think one of the things that's quite remarkable about the Yatley government, and Labour's very, um, how should I put it, has got quite a track record on this, is, you know, he's not very well remembered within mm. Britain for, for various reasons. Um you know, Churchill obviously led a coalition government that uh, won the war, but on the domestic front, um, At Atlee's government was far more radical and long-lived, but he's not a prime minister that certainly uh, roughly 70 years after he last left office yeah. um, is well known amongst the British public at large, notwithstanding the, the, the sort of transformational uh, domestic achievements that his government put in place yeah. um, and I think that echoes down down you know the decades as well when you think of some of the other I think prime ministers that we're probably going to come to shortly um, certainly on the Labour side um, we're not very um, how shall I put it we're not sometimes very kind to our history uh, and to the achievements that our leaders have achieved whilst in power 
Oh, uh, I think there's a telling lesson there to learn with Atley and uh, and his record in, in power. I think that's spot on. If you look at our three best prime ministers from the Labour parties, Clem Attlee, Harold Wilson, and Tony Blair. Clem Attlee did the NHS, Harold Wilson did the Open University, abolishing the death penalty, the Camp Tower Block Revolution, Tony Blair did minimum wage, NHS investment, short start tax credits, peace in Northern Ireland. And yet we've, you know, we've wrote off Attlee as the man who lost us in 51. We saw Harold Wilson as the old senile communist agent who basically gave us a majority of three in 74 and led to the destruction of James Callaghan. And Tony Blair, people say, oh, you just did Iraq. And the fact is, Clem Attlee won two massive, two victories. How Wilson won four, Tony Blair won three. And if you look at the Tory party, you know, it's all forgotten that the Tory party got rid of Mrs. Thatcher themselves because of Jeffrey House speech and Michael Heseltine standing for the leadership. And, you know, yes, you had Cameron with the, you know, there is such thing as society. It's not the same thing as the state. Therefore, abandoning Mrs. Thatcher's vision of there's no such thing as society. And then you have Theresa May doing that same thing. But the Tory party now wrapped this around Mrs. Thatcher and we do not do the same thing for Attlee, even though Attlee, would, he, would you say Attlee was a socialist? I mean... Yeah, I would. I would say he was a socialist. Um, yeah. Uh, and, you know... Uh, the Attlee government embarked on, you know, sizable nationalisations of industry okay. in the wake of the war, yeah. um, which, you know, remained in place for a considerable number of, of years. Um, it certainly was a government that had strong socialist values at its core and was one which, at the time, struck a very different chord from... Yeah. The conservative view of the world uh, of a, a sort of colonialist power which still felt that it could um, have its way wherever it wanted mm. and also was to some extent um, still looking back to you know the Edwardian era of, of decades before in Churchill who at that time was you know considerably old older than he had been um, in the run-up to war when he was talking about appeasement and, and was very much a um, fading man. Yeah, but the interesting part, I mean, your analysis is interesting, but I don't think it's wholly correct because the Conservative Party was not a, and I mean, obviously I'm Labour through and through, but the Tory party was not a colonial party. In 1930-40, they had given the India the promise that they'd be able to have independence if they fought in World War II. The Tory party, I do actually agree, the Tory party of, say, 1920s was very much an Edwardian party. But if you go to 45, you have Rab Butler, you have Howard Macmillan, you have Anthony Eden, you have Winston Churchill, who are modernisers. Now, actually, the way there are some who say, well, if, if Winston had got back in 45, the same reforms invented. I think that's nonsense because, you know, it took 1948 for the Tory party to commit to not overturning Labour's ideas. So would the Tory party have done the same things Labour had done in the 45, 50 years? Probably not. But I do think that in some ways we look at the Atlee years as the sort of socialist uh, revolutionary government that went brilliantly. I think that if you look at it from an objective point of view, yes, they were definitely on the left. Definitely. Uh, much more to the left than, say, Tony Blair was. But, you know, Herbert Morrison, centrist. You had, uh, yes, Nye Bevan, who was very much a far left uh, legend. You had, obviously, Atlee was basically left off centre. But I think the issue with the Labour government was if, you know, 1952, the world trade standards eased dramatically, therefore helping our balance of payments, which brought the deficit down. So therefore we had more money to spend. If we had had that in, if, if, they, if the Atlee government had gone through just one more year 
and we had stayed in office in 1952 when the economic circumstances had radically changed for the better, do you think that we would have had more NHS-style reforms? We had like a national education service, a proper welfare state, etc. Do you think that Attlee government would have had the moral grounds to implement those reforms if they'd just been in for one more year? I think it's hard to say. I think it's very difficult. But I mean, certainly what I will say is um, that Attlee's government and its view on housing is very similar to how I perceive their take on the need for NHS, their need for strong public services. The fact that, you know, Britain's economy was growing considerably um, at, at that point in time as they were coming out of out of war. But at the same time, you've got to remember that um, the UK was still uh, a country that was where there was rationing until the early 50s. Um, there was still a lot of post-war recovery. And I think, you know, there was only so much that that government was ever going to manage to achieve in the short period of time it had. Yeah. I think there is a tendency sometimes to look look at things with uh, rose-tinted spectacles as well, which I think is what you're alluding to. Yes. But we have to give um, we have to give uh, the government of the time um, the benefit of the doubt in terms of the substantial reforms they were able to enact. So, totally. yeah. No, I totally agree with that. I think that's absolutely true. And that's the start. You know, Clem Attlee, Margaret Thatcher, and Tony Blair are three of Britain's biggest transformative prime ministers. You know, the NHS, unemployment compensation, joining NATO. These are things that wouldn't have happened without the Attlee government. Let's move on to Hugh Gateskill now. You know, everyone, Hugh Gateskill is an interesting figure because, of course, when he went to the country in 59, Macmillan versus Gateskill, that was one election where, truthfully, you could say that both parties were campaigning for virtually the same things. But Hugh Gateskill had been transferred under Clem Attlee after Hugh Dalton, Stafford Cripps, or I think it was Hugh Dalton, had to resign because he'd leaked um, certain tax changes of the budget to the journal to a journalist in 47. So he had to resign for that. Interesting enough, you know, current governments don't live by those standards. But Hugh Gateskill had come in, had reduced defense, defense expenditure, put prescription charges on for the NHS for eye and dental care, He'd done all that. He'd radically increased social service spending, but Britain was in a tight headroom. So when, of course, Attlee lost in 55, uh, his fourth election for the Labour Party, fifth election for the Labour Party, 35, 45, 50, 51, 55, fifth election for the party, he'd lost another one, 277 seats. Hugh Gateskill took over. Now, Hugh Gateskill was a centrist. He was a real centrist. He was, of course, not very big fan of Anirin Bevan, who was a left-wing hero to many. But then, of course, you get to 59. Now, the 59 manifesto was more or less the exact same manifesto as, as the 55, 51, 50 or 45 manifesto. You know, nationalisation of industry, increasing... I mean, it was an interesting pledge where he famously wanted to increase the pensions by about £18 pounds in today's money, and he promised not to raise taxes. So he got himself in a bit of a pickle over that one. Whilst Macmillan was campaigning on... You know, he famously wrote the third wave book. He was campaigning on increased social service, spending, increasing on the health service, increasing on the welfare state, right with um, Rab Butler leading the economy. So there is a thesis that would Hugh Gateskill have ever become prime minister? What do you think? Do you think Hugh Gateskill could ever become prime minister, say in either 59 or if he had been poisoned in 64 then? Sorry, if he hadn't died of a heart attack. Sorry. I think he could have. I certainly think he could have. Um, he had his. I think what the one issue with Gateskill in particular 
um, was the divisions within the Labour Party, certainly in the early 60s, which were starting to emerge. Um, divisions over Europe, mm -hmm. divisions over internal party reform, whether that be um, regarding uh, what was then the clause four debate that was happening, which was a precursor to the same clash Blair had yep. in the mid 90s. Or whether that be, as you rightly said earlier, um, division in being able to distinguish between, you know, what, you know, what he stood for and what the Tories were, the platform the Tories were standing on. I, I think it's, I think it's very plausible that Gateshall could have won. Um, you know, again, Macmillan, you know, <laughs> Macmillan was a tired man by then. Um, Gateshall, um, whilst a divisive character for many, um, I do believe could have been successful um, had he lived to see the next election in. Um, of course, we know what the result was from that election anyway, with Wilson's result uh, yeah. and him then going on to secure a more stable government in the 66 election. Yeah. Um, but I do think that um, regardless as to your, in, your personal views uh, on him, that he was a formidable politician had a strong track record as a Labour frontbencher. Um, and, you know, he was a fantastic orator. Um, oh, he had... Go on. Yeah, no, of course he was. Of course he was. And, you know, they talk about divisions on Europe. There was the infamous speech where he talked about the end of a thousand years of history if Britain ever was to join the European Economic Community. But I think, was could Gateskill have ever become prime minister? 1964, the Howard Wilson result was it? The four-seat majority. Labour had got 317 seats. Sorry, 317 seats. The four-seat majority, and of course, went to 96 in uh, the 66 election. Now, you have to remember Wilson. Wilson was a unifier. He had left and right on his side. He wasn't very explicit in his policy. Yes, he talked about the white heat of technological revolution. Yes, he talked about the tower block revolution. Yes, he talked about the social reforms. And yes, he contrasted brilliantly from Sir Alec Douglas Hume. But Gateskill was a more divisive figure. Now, whilst he was intellectually speaking formidable, I think personally, after 57, when Gateskill had let the Tories off the Suez, when Anthony Eden made that historic blunder on the Suez Canal and, and Gateskill was for and then against him and made a broadcast where he basically blundered Labour Party position and then blundered the debate in the same way that Neil Kennedy did with Westlands, that whilst he was still a towering figure, he wasn't prime, ministerial, prime minister material. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as I said, he was, he was for some people, he was divisive. Um, Unfortunately, we don't have the benefit of the doubt to know what the result would have been. Um, but again, he falls into that, that trap almost, if you like, of another Labour Party leader over the years who's almost been completely forgotten about Gateskill. I think if you, if you look to see are there any biographies on him or academic studies on Gateskill, they're few and far between. That's right. He's one of those characters that's, you know, not that long ago, uh, leading the Labour Party in the grand scheme of things, but is almost completely um, completely absent from, from academic studies of the party's history. Well, I agree with that, because if we go down, say, all the way down to Michael Foote, we're all, well, not, we're not, but there, I think there is an ignorance about history that is a lot in today's politicians and today's political debates, that we haven't, that we don't look to the past for the answers, we only look to the future. And I think if you look at a lot of the issues debated, say, 
in 64. They are still pretty much the same issues debated today. The health service, the housing crisis, education, unemployment, uh, defence, ta de taxation, deficit. These are the issues that we debated in, in the last election. So, you know, we do have... The vast majority of people, when they go to the ballot box, yeah. want fairly straightforward things from the government. Yeah. They want to feel, feel safe at home and in around in and around their communities. I agree. They want stable education and the opportunity for the next generations to get on in life and have a better chance than they did. Yeah. They want good paying jobs yeah. and a national health service that's there when they need to fall back on it. That's yeah. free at the point of use. Of course. Um, and, you know, they want politicians that they can trust, people that they can trust, not just a face but actually a government that they can rely upon to spend their money wisely, both through the good times and the bad. So that parallel to 64 or 66, yes, it's no surprise that some of the issues are very much the same. I mean, yeah, it's the same themes. You've articulated those themes quite superbly, and I totally agree with those themes there. And the main theme is stability, in my view, is that, you know, yes, Harry Wilson once said anything for a quiet life, but the British people want stability, and that is in a, in a way that if the, like, that sometimes the Labour Party can be perceived as socialist revolutionaries, and they don't want a revolution, they just want change that can actually help them. And I think when Attlee was in charge, or Hugh Gates Skull, or Harold Wilson, or Cal Jim Callahan, or Tony Blair, and Gordon Brown to a large extent, when they were in charge, they had solutions to our problems. Yes, you had the Tony Benn, to so the Michael Foots, who are brilliant orators and debaters, second to none, but they had practical solutions. And that's why the Labour Party as an electoral group, in those periods, the 40s, the 60s, the, 90, the 2000s, had an electoral grip. That they were the centre of political dominance. I think there is a slight white elephant in the room here, which is why the Labour Party, after 122 years of existence, yeah. has actually been in power so few years during that time. I mean, I don't know the, the exact number off the top of my head, but if you think back over the years... Um, one third of our entire existence is 33. During the, during, during the course of the last 120 years, the Tory party has been in ascendancy, the overwhelming majority of those. Yeah. And I think, I think in a way, I don't know whether that speaks to a, a broader issue on the left around unity. Um, Certainly. Or just the machine politics that the Tory party has, or to an inherent small C conservativeness in this country. I don't have the answers, but it is something that we should reflect on. Well, Not least because, you know, as somebody somebody who's born in the 80s, which isn't, uh, I have to say, despite my desire for it to be more re recent, isn't that recent, yeah. I've only ever known one Labour Prime Minister who's won an election in this country. Hmm. Um, the Dale leader, yeah. But that's, I mean, if you look at a lot of our policies, you know, funding the health service, funding education, cutting class sizes, reducing poverty, full employment, tackling the inner cities, also having a strong national defence, etc. You know, these six policies, are, are basically the country agrees with them. But then you look at the Tory party, low taxes, strong national defence, strong national security, um, having, running a budget surplus, therefore paying down the debts. The, Tory, the country agrees with them on that as well. So I think whilst the country agree the majority of Labour Party policies, it's partly because of communication is so dreadful. 
that when we are communicating well, we are unstoppable. It's partly because the left vote is split, as you said, you know, you got the Labour, Liberal Democrats and the Greens fighting over the exact same vote, the left wing vote or the centre vote. And the Tory, and there's only one party on the right, and that's the Conservative Party. So that's another reason. Well, not always, not not necessarily always. Don't well, okay, take out 2015 and 2019. Most of the time, yeah. it is the Conservative yeah. Party is the main right wing party or centre right party, and the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats is the main parties on the left. But I think the third issue is partly is it due to our small C conservativeness? Maybe in the context of our government, but not in the context of our people. Do we want to conserve things and preserve things? Of course we do. But we have to make the case the Conservative Party, whether from on, from Mrs. Thatcher onwards, have been ripping everything up. That's hardly conserving anything. But, you know, go to Harold Wilson. Wilson, of course, after 13 years of a Conservative government, a majority of 100, uh, in five years after Perfumo, after after the failed EEC rejection, after Selwyn Lloyd being sacked as Chancellor because of the balance of payments deficit, after the scramble for growth, after the Night of Long Knives, where he's McMillan sacked one third of his entire cabinet, the Labour Party had modernised under Wilson. Okay, the policies were pretty much still the same. We were still supporting nationalisation. We were still supporting tax and spend economics. But there was a feeling of a new Britain. And in the Labour Party, in one election, had gone from a 100-seat Tory majority to four-seat Labour majority in 96. The current leadership could learn something from how Wilson maybe on how to outdo a Tory government that people have got sick of. But if you look at the Wilson policy, especially in the first, you know, Wilson didn't want to devalue sterling because you had the Department for Economic Affairs set up with George Brown as head. Him, James Callaghan and Tara Wilson said, we're not going to devalue the pound, sowing the seeds of their own destruction. You had the failure in Rhodesia. Then you had the 66 victory. You had the open university, the tower block revolution, the cuts in prices. Then you had the devaluation of, of the pound, uh, 14%. Then you had Roy Jenkins balancing the balanced payment surplus. Then you had the abolishing of fear censorship, the decriminalisation of homosexuality, decriminalisation of abortion, proposed by the Liberal MP David Steele, and then the shock defeat in 1970. So, you know, how does the Labour Party get that strong record? Put it this way, was devaluation the reason the Labour Party lost in 1917 that how Wilson dominance on politics ended? Well, I mean, the party never wins general elections unless it can be trusted on the economy. If yeah. there's one thing we know, and we still see this to this day in polling, but there has been some interest in polling this week, is that historically voters typically are more inclined to trust the Tories yeah. than they are the Labour Party to manage their money. Correct. Now, where that, where, where that deep-founded um, yeah. sort of... Uh, notion is is, is grounded is, is is beyond me but I think if you struggle to persuade voters that you are able to look after their money and balance the books and manage the economy mm. in a coherent manner and you mm. mentioned devaluation yeah then you're always going to have difficulty when an election comes around I think what's very striking and there's a clear legacy of that government were the overwhelming social reforms that Wilson and his cabinet introduced. I mean, you talk about decriminalization of homosexuality, you talk about uh, the Abortion Act, you talk about um, death penalty. abolition of the death penalty. These are all things which would be anathema to us in the 2020s. You know, we yeah. couldn't conceive of you know, um, 
being gay being a criminal offence yeah. or um, you know or abortion being a criminal offence it was only in, in, in 67 that, that came around 55 years ago um, you wouldn't get it, away from abortion in today's terms I don't think I think if you look at it in this context that if we had the same social attitudes within the 1950s and these bills came up in today's terms, the 2020s, would Parliament get away with abolishing them today? The answer is no, because in the 60s, Dominic Sandbrook is a historian on British politics, outlined that in the 60s, there was a, a massive respect for Parliament because, you know, the average MP was in about 15 grand a year in today's terms, nothing more, nothing less, really. It was not a big salary job. And there was a feeling that MPs knew best. Those MPs knew best. You had, you know, 78% turnout in general elections in 64, for instance. So would a lot of these reforms that Wilson did, you know, famously 1964, Sidney Silverman, the Labour MP, did a private member's bill that suspended capital punishment for five years. Then you had the Bradley-Hindley murders where everyone thought they should be slaughtered. And then 69, Wilson abolished it uh, for all things except treason, arson and the Royal Naval Dockyard. So would these progressive reforms pass in today's parliament, do you think? With, if the if these attitudes were today's attitudes, it's a, a quite an unusual hypothetical. Mm. Um, what you mean in today's parliament constitution as it is with the current yeah, today, with, with today's group of MPs, would they be able to, for example, abolish the death penalty if Britain had capital punishment? Well, well, well. Look, I mean, we've got a Home Secretary in the past who said that she was a, a proponent of the death penalty. You know, we've got a uh, ridiculous woman. Yeah, we've we've, we've got we've got a. Um, effectively a deputy prime minister who has previously said that he doesn't respect the human rights act and he wants to repeal it you know we've got a um a cabinet that is riven with people who are no proponents of civil liberties yeah. and um have no truck for government being held to account for its infractions on human rights yeah it's fine. so whilst this is an unusual hypothetical to ask what MPs of the 2020s would think of bills put before them that were written in the 60s. I do think there are very many still a reactionary in Parliament who are not mm. um, supporters of the social reforms that great Labour governments have previously achieved. And if they could get away with it, mm. they would look to turn the clock back on some of these issues. It's like, you know, Mrs. Thatcher regularly offered votes to restore capital punishment. They were regularly rejected. And had it not, in my view, had not been for cases like the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six, where, you know, you had IRA terrorist cases with the perpetrators supposedly being freed because they had nothing to do with it. Had those type of cases not happened, with the Guildford Four, Birmingham Six, Tottenham Three or Judith Ford, then we would not have had the full surmounting of the abolition of capital punishment in Britain. But I think if we look at Wilson in 70, first of all, the campaign was dreadful. <laughs> it, Wilson treated the whole thing as a coronation. You know, Labour had very few broadcasters. Was, 1970 was the first what I call the advertising election, because you had Edward Heath had advertisers, you had Wilson strutting around the country, impersonating the Queen, and you know every poll until the 17th of June, the day before the election, had Labour comfortably ahead. You know, The Friday before polling day, Labour were 14 points ahead in the Daily Mail. And then what changed? Well, the first time in three years, the Labour Party had been running a balance of uh, payments deficit on its balance of trade. And therefore that got rid of the economy narrative. Now you made a question before about 
how is it the Tory party are trusted with the economy when, you know, 1981, 1980, 1981, You know, the Republican Party in America, which I'm, we do British and American politics, the Republican Party shouts about how they defend freedom so loudly. They forget to mention that George Bush's Patriot Act basically allowed the US government to tap into your emails, your phones, your text messages. You know, Linton Crosby, who was the election uh, campaign manager for the Cameron lot, he said to everybody who was working in the Tory party, you know, when you go on the media, say the phrase long term economic plan. So when George Osborne went on, when David Cameron, Michael Gove, IDS, when they went on, they would say, you know, we're having, we've got a long-term economic plan for this country. And so by the time the election came round, you know, because it's all saying that one quarter of voters make up their mind on the day of the poll. What's the key phrase? Um, Ed Miliband's got Ed Stone and the Tories have a long-term economic plan. So in some ways, I think communication links to uh, belief that if you say something long enough, and consistently enough, people will eventually believe it. Uh, and this is a recurring theme that I've seen over a number of elections in the last few years. Mm. Um, you only need to look at the 2019 election, get Brexit done, yeah. add infantilism, and the deliberate Tory strategy of hammering it home. I don't want to steal all our thunder because I know we're going to get onto that late, later, but do you want to speak about Callaghan? Yeah, let's look, Jim, let's look at Jim Callaghan. Now, James Callaghan, of course, was the... Chancellor of the Exchequer under Howard Wilson devalued pound. He was the Home Secretary under Howard Wilson that abolished the death penalty. He was the Foreign Secretary that wanted to not really have a federal Europe. The old, you know, if the if our language is to be spoken in French and we were to abandon the pound, then I may say, uh, then I, my opinion will be, and I'll say it in French, non merci beaucoup, infamously that in 1971. But James Callaghan was the only Prime Minister to hold all four great offices of state. He inherited a government with a majority of one. God. And Wilson, who resigned in March 76, because he said he could give two, two more years and then resign at the age of 60. Now, Wilson, sorry, Callag James Callaghan had Dennis Healy as Chancellor, Anthony Crossland as the Home Secretary, had Roy Hattersley, had Michael Foote as Deputy Prime Minister. I think that cabinet, he had Roy Jenkins as the Home Secretary, Tony Benn as, as Energy Secretary, Barbara Castle was sacked, obviously, but that cabinet was one of the strongest, I'd argue, until Tony Blair's 2005 one, that, that was one of the strongest cabinets we ever had because that was full of lots of very experienced people who'd been there from the very start. So, you know, what was, in your view, James Callaghan's, the main reason that the Callaghan government collapsed within two and a half years? Was it devolution? Was it the winter of discontent? Or was it because of the IMF crisis? Well, I mean, look, it was all of those. And, you know, he was hamstrung from the time he, he took up the prime ministerial reins of office. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it was almost, there's that famous quote of him coming back from uh, the Caribbean at the airport saying, crisis, what crisis? And, yeah. you know, it's it's quite prevalent of, um, you know, being out of touch with the electorate. I mean, people picked that up and said, the prime minister does not have a clue what's going on. Um, and I think, you know, <laughs> You mentioned you mentioned the, ref, the failed referenda. You, you mentioned um, the winter of discontent and um, growing industrial discontent a, a, across the country in in the late 70s, 77, 78, through to seventy nine. 
Um, you know, there was talk of, of Callaghan potentially calling an earlier election. Yeah. Um, I, I think won. it... What, sorry? Which he would have won easily. Easily. Yeah, and I think, you know, really he was... He inherited a difficult job. Um, mm. It wasn't clear that Wilson was going to resign at mm. all. And um, I really, I really struggled to see um, that, uh, that that once that election was called, there was going to be much of a different outcome for the Callaghan government. But as you say, very much a, a government of talents, lots of strong names in there who whose legacy echoes down down the decades exactly. um and i think you know plenty of ministerial experience as well from from wilson's time in office uh callahan unique in that regard i think he's the only um person ever to have held all four of those great offices of state um but um you know events dear boy events Good old man. Uh, they, 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 they just go to show that even though you hold the most powerful office in the country, so many events are out of your control, even in Downing Street, that um, you can't control everything that happens. Sorry, I think James Callaghan and Gordon Brown are remarkably similar because, you know, Gordon Brown's main trouble started after he bottled the 2007 election that never was. James mm. Callahan's troubles really accelerated after the night after he bottled the 1978 election that never was. You know, Callahan, he had inherited 27, 26.9% inflation, he inherited interest rates through the roof, he inherited trade unions out of control. But if we look at the Lib Lab Pact, where you know that was strong government between the Labour and the Liberals, where the left wing of the Labour Party couldn't do what they wanted because the Liberals wouldn't let us. It was the infamous quote from Peter Shaw that these uh adjects, I swear, yeah. I'm quoting someone where Peter Shaw went, these bastard liberals have more power than Jesus Christ and the 12 apostles. But, you know, the Liberal Party could stop virtually everything from occurring. Then, of course, you got 78. The IMF crisis was, you know, that was debating the cabinet for two weeks. That was famously leaked. But Callahan had the winter of discontent. Now, the winter of discontent destroyed the trade unions because if you look at the year before in 78, the Tory party, you know, Mrs. Thatcher in early 78 said, you know, one of the great myths about the Conservative Party is that the Conservative Party is not an anti-trade union party, but we believe in a strong trade union system within a free market economy. And of course, after the winter of discontent, that went out the window. She had James Pryor as Home Secretary, a very, sorry, James Pryor's Employment Secretary, a very pro-trade union man, Sam man, Jim Pryor. But the Callaghan government, because of pay policy, the, the policy that, you know, wages must be kept with a 5% increase, uh, no more than 5%. And of course, when Ford said they wanted 15 and Parliament allowed that, then the civil service went for 26 and UP went for 20. That caused the winter of discontent. But in my view, you know, when you talk about the crisis, what crisis headline, I mean, that's one of the greatest media misrepresentations in history. Because when he came back from Guadalupe and he threw a boy, he said, you know, uh, as a reporter asked Jim Callahan, you know, do you think that the industrial chaos, industrial uh, dispute is a scene of mounting chaos? And he said, I think if you look at it from a parochial perspective, you look at it from another way, that you will, I will not, you will not take the view that there is mounting chaos. There are serious problems in this country, but do not run down your country with talks of mounting chaos. And then the sun the next day, run the headline, crisis, what crisis, which, as you said brilliantly, shows them as out of touch. But because the Lib Lab Pact had collapsed, They've been forced to deal, deal with the Welsh nationalists, the Ulster unionists, the Scottish nationalists, and that led to a referendum. And of course, it was famous that even though the 
79 referendum had passed, the Labour Party, the Unionist Labour Party, had put an amendment saying, you know, no referendum could pass without 40% of the total electorate voting, which means they like 67% support. It was about 51% support. So therefore, the referendum was invalidated. And that, of course, led to the um, vote of no confidence. But it's interesting fact that, you know, 52, 51-79, the exact same fact that the North Sea oil money had come in, was going to come in the early 80s, right? And, you know, you talk about things in your right history. North Sea oil was disgracefully broken out of British history. How we had £100 billion a year of North Sea oil money coming in. And Mrs Thatcher, being an imbecile, blew it on tax cuts. Um, but do you think that if the... Let's say that when Enoch Powell had come to White Hadley with an offer saying that, you know, if we have a pipeline, that would allow the Ulster Unionists to back the government... That would have given the government a majority in the no confidence vote. If the Labour government had won because the economics, the economy was bettering in the late part of 79, would Jim Callaghan, Dennis Healy use the North Sea oil money to create the Atlee vision, do you think? <sighs> we had 100 billion a year that Mrs. Thatcher just. Whoa. I mean, I think you think you have to think of the wider economic context, as you said, with no. rampant inflation, balance of payments deficit, and right. also substantial industrial action. Um, those are all systemic issues that would have to be, um, would have had to have been overcome first. It's certainly plausible, um, but I think, as you as you mentioned when you were talking about Callahan's response to the journalist when he came back with yeah. that crisis, not what not crisis headline, yeah, um, that there were wider issues at play, societal issues as well, as well as economic ones, which were long standing, which the government needed to resolve, especially around wages, especially around the cost of living, which has got a clear parallel with today. Yeah. I think what what's interesting, just to go off on a slight tangent, is there's a fantastic play called Labour of Love. Um, written by a chap called James Graham, um, which is set during that uh, 74 to 79 uh, Parliament, which um, takes the perspective of the Tory and the um, Labour whips offices and how they're trying to either bolster or bring down, respectively, the, the incumbent government by leaning on the Scots Nationalists uh, and, the, and the other smaller parties. So if anybody's ever got the chance to watch that or come across it, highly recommended. It's, a it's great fantastic. Watching. It's a great And plot, again, right? a lot a lot of parallels with all the running around trying to get votes um, during the Brexit uh, Brexit period in Parliament. It's a great play. It's a great writing. You got the wrong name. <laughs> it's called This House by James Graham. It's a great, great. It's the exact same plot. Um, but it's on the National Theatre Archive if anyone wants to watch it. It's an absolutely amazing play about the whip's office, about how the Labour government survived in the, the late period. It's, it's an amazing play to watch. But I think, you know, if you look at post-79, so yes, you have the rise of militancy, you have, you know, Tony Benn stomping around the country saying the last Labour government sold out the working class, and you get to eight, the 80 conference where you had mandatory reselection being fought for, you had the Electoral College in terms of unions, members and MPs being fought for by the by the Chris Mullen, Dennis Skinner's, the Tony Benz of the world, the Eric Heffers. And I think that, look, if Michael Foote had not become leader and Dennis Healy had become leader, the Labour Party would not have been crushed in 83, full stop. That is just a fact, right? Do you not think so? 
I, I certainly think so. I think Michael Foote was always an impressive leader and an yeah. impressive politician. But I think the difficulty coming out of that 79 election was the scale of the challenge that Labour faced yeah. and the fact that off the back of the Falklands War, that Thatcher was almost turbo boosted by the victory there, which allowed her to go into that 83 election, yeah. positioning herself as a strong leader. And again, many parallels with what we're seeing with Johnson and with Ukraine, that she was able to play on perceived weaknesses within Labour and yeah. that we were too focused on looking inwards as a party as opposed to speaking out to the electorates. Like the things you were talking about, mandatory reselection and electoral college for the leader, those are not the issues that voters on the doorstep were talking about or concerns that were mattered to them. We were far too preoccupied with having internal battles amongst ourselves and I think you're going to talk about militant, about the role it played um, in making sure that, you know, we stayed out of office for 18 years. At least, um, yeah. Militant scarred us. But I think if you look at mandatory reselection in the uh, Electoral College, you know, there was three million employed. There was a massive recession. You had Toxteth, you had Moss Side rioting. You had Mrs. Thatcher basically saying, why can't these people just pick up litter? You had Nolan and Tevis saying they need to get on their bike and look for work, even though there basically was no work because the Tory party destroyed most blue-collar industries. And the Labour Party spent 18 months talking about, do we need to mandatory reselect MPs and ensure unions and members can have an electoral project? I mean, Dennis Healy famously called these debates abstract theoretical questions that are totally irrelevant to the needs of the ordinary people. And I think that's the best way of looking at that period in the 1780 period, that we, that we, the Labour Party, whilst Mrs. Thatcher was destroying the miners, she was destroying the steel industry, you know, Keith Joseph saying, you know, he wanted to privatise the entire steel industry, and all that was happening... And instead of us talking about the unemployment, the social despair, we were talking about, do we believe that moderate MPs should be reselected at once every five years rather than just once in a life? I mean, that just automatically gives the impression to the public that, you know, we're not fit to run the country. Yeah, entirely that. And, um, you know, Labour, just like any political party, needs to earn voters' trust and needs to be in touch with people's concerns. Uh, again, in the 80s, there were far-reaching social economic changes, the growth of the finance sector, its deregulation in the city, um, mass industrialization in the north, yep. Thatcher clamping down on trade unions and trade union rights, um, deregulation of industry and employment. Um, and we were just talking about internal Labour Party politics. I mean, when we do that, when we look inwards on ourselves, we will lose elections. It's as simple as that. So yeah, Healy was entirely right. He was entirely right to say that. Yeah. I and mean, we did it in the Corbyn era. We did it under the Gateskill era. 
where when we do not look at the Tory part, I mean, one of the benefits of Keir Starmer and the same thing that Tony Blair did was that he said, for God's sake, let's look at the enemy who's actually destroying this country, destroying our communities. And that, let's stop debating, is somebody sufficiently left-wing enough? And let's look at the right wing, which are tearing apart this country's basic fabric uh, foundations like the welfare state. But I think for any debate is far more effective rather than having a debate whether some centrist is not left-wing enough is to look at the, those on the right wing and see how they're tearing apart the country but if you look at you know the rise of the social democrats you have the you know the limehouse coalition the gang of four shelley williams david owen uh bill rogers and obviously Roy jenkins making that amazing party that had nearly destroyed us but obviously i mean the sdp was just doomed from from day one because dennis healy wouldn't join it or Hattersley wouldn't join it. And because the Labour bigwigs wouldn't join the um, SDP, and because the Labour Party basically was refusing to die, there was no room for the Social Democratic Party or the Liberal Alliance, mm. in my view. But if we go on. I, I, think, I think you're entirely right on the SDP. Um, it, it, in a way, it shows how disunited the Labour Party was. Um, and again, very strong parallels with, you know, where we've been in the last you know, five, six, seven years, that the gang of four felt that their best way forwards was to leave the party and set up a rival, uh, a, a, a rival party to contend at that election. Uh, and I think, again, you know, it speaks to the point that Labour needs to speak through to its values but it also needs to speak to a wider audience than just its base, both within the Westminster bubble, but more importantly, in the country at large. Otherwise, we might as well just go home and sack this all in, because you're not going to win an election. You're not going to win the confidence of the country when it comes to polling day. I spot and agree. I mean, you need, it's what I call the broad coalition of voters. You need Corbyn, Knight, Starmer, Rights to Brown, Knights to Blair, Rights, the Tim Farron styled Liberal Democrat voters, and the Ken Clark One Nation Conservatives. And if you do not have those six demographic of voters supporting your thesis, you will not win a general election. And that's what sometimes what when, when we have that coalition of like we did under Attlee, like we did under Harold Wilson and Tony Blair, we absolutely walked those elections. But when we deny you know, when people take have a go at the Conservative Party calling evil and satanic and all these things, you know, you can't start a conversation with people, with voters you need to win over, by basically saying, we don't like you. You know, that's not going to get a conversation going. And, you know, if you look at the Neil Kinnock of leadership, you had 83, where we basically had been annihilated. You had the miners' strike, which, you know, some of things being written out of history, the miners' strike has been really written out of history because I was listening to Ken Clark's book the other day, like good old Ken Clark, and he talked about how that was one of the biggest political divides. And I think with the miners, if Arthur Scargill had allowed a ballot, which had clearly showed there was what a desire for industrial action, because, as you know, Ian McGregor and Mrs. Thatcher wanted to close 100,000 jobs in 100 pits, then the miners' strike would have won easily. But because there was no democratic vote, Mrs. Thatcher could make Arthur Scargill into General Galtieri. And the Labour Party naturally, because Neil Kinnock, of course, was a Southern Welsh miner, the Labour Party naturally was really screwed with the miner strike. Yeah, and I mean, 
just just speak it speaks to that systematic destruction almost of you know the industrial base of the north labor's base in many a way across northern communities you know and and speaks to that deregulation that fundamental change in the british economy that we saw with the big bang in the city in 86 that we saw with the increasing move to a service economy um the offshoring of jobs the deindustrialization of of the british economy um and also um you know attack on workers rights during the thatcher era um, it's 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 still an issue which burns large in many people's minds and rightly so thatcher and her government um uh, will never be forgiven for those who suffered um, during during that particular period. I think mean, fairly would like with I mean we had a lot of success as the Labour Party. You know when the eighty seven election we revived our image a lot, and you know it's famous. And I think Mrs. Thatcher of course wanted to privatise the health service. She tried in eighty one. She tried in eighty three. She tried in eighty seven and eighty eight to privatise the NHS. I mean Ken Clark's book talks about how she wants to create an Americanized insurance system based on tax deductions which makes me think what could got possibly gone through her head that makes me think the americanized healthcare system is a good idea so obviously isn't but the labor party we had chances to get rid of her you know you talk about the big bang that where the great part where we deregulate the stock exchange therefore making london the number one city in west in the western world except for new york the main city for investment the Labour Party should welcome that when we privatised council houses. Now, yes, of course, uh, the fact that we haven't built council houses since privatisation was, of course, exceptionally absurd. But that principle was something we should have supported. There were, I think, in the in the eighties, there were missed opportunities for the Labour Party. You know, if we got on board with, for example, the privatisation of BT, the privatisation of council houses, the deregulation, therefore, they're causing a massive investment into London. If we had watered down our tax proposal just a little bit, if we'd abandoned new natural nuclear disarmament, that, and if we'd made, for example, someone like Dennis Healy or someone like Peter Roy Hudson, the leader of the party in 87, and I adore Neil Kinnett to shreds, that would have won Labour in 87. Because the Tory party, as Michael Patillo said, you know, on the Political Party podcast, you know, Mrs. Thatcher's 87 appeal was sort of, Look, I know you don't like me. In fact, I know a majority of you probably can't stand the side to me, but you know on those tough decisions, I'll take the right cause and the opposition won't. And that's why I think you'll vote me back in. And I think in the 80s, the Labour Party didn't want to confront the tough domestic decisions or foreign policy decisions. You had the idea that we wanted to disarm nuclear weapons on our own without any multilateral cooperation you know, have you seen that post posted, the Labour policy on arms post? Have you seen that one? I'm not sure which one you're referring to, but you have to, just while, oh, you're, while you're bringing that up, I think you're going to do, you have to consider as well, this was at the height of the Cold War. There you go, Phil. Look at that. Oh, this yeah. That's, that, if you're an undecided floating voter, that screws you. That was the 87 poster on the Tory party in response to our idea that we were going to um, disarm nuclear weapons unilaterally. So they basically said we were going to be surrendering to the communists. To, I mean, that's just... Yeah. I think a lot of our policies back then in the era, we had, you know, we had Marxists in the party and the Labour Party had stopped fighting the good fight in, in underfoot and it took time. So I think... You know, do you think that 
my analysis of the 87 election is correct? Or do you think that if we'd stuck to more of our principles, we could have won? I, I think you're right. Mm. I, I mean, I think that the fact of the matter is as well, that Kinnock had only been in, this was Kinnock's first election. Um, it takes a significant amount of time for a leader to bed in of a new opposition. But also, you do have to speak to those voters who felt that Thatcher back in 79 represented a change in the right direction. Yeah. And I think there were missed opportunities. I think you're going to come and speak potentially to the 92 election slightly later, which has also got some parallels. Yeah. But, you know, we've got to remember the base from which Kinnock was fighting in the 87 election. Um, having had, as we know, um, the longest suicide in history as the party's manifesto in 1983. Oh, okay. And, you know, Labour won, um, I'm just trying to see how many seats Labour won at the 87 election. 229. 229, okay. Um, which was a which was a gain of, of 20, 20 a yeah. net gain of 20 yeah. um which is you know a surplus of 20 odd on where we're currently at um yeah, pretty much uh eight years into opposition and now we're we, you know we're uh, we're 12 years into a conservative administration so the parallels are so so relevant the parallels are literally there you know 959, the Labour Party had lost a third, a third election in a row, going down in number of seats from 277 to 258. 1987, the Labour Party had lost a third election in a row, going to 229 seats. 2017, yes, we gained seats, but now we are down to two, or 200, uh, 202 seats. We were on 202 seats, the Labour Party was on. So I think the Labour Party doesn't learn their lesson. You know, the Tory Party, when they're booting into opposition, you know, you had the Butler years where they basically became moderates. You had the Heath years where they basically became centrists. Then you had uh, the insane period where, you know, you had Ian Duncan Smith and William Hague and Michael Howard chatting ugh, ghastly ideas. And Cameron was a modernizer. But the Labour Party often takes a decade to learn how to go back to the centre ground. It's sort of like when we lose, we always listen to our left wing conscience. I, I don't even like to talk about it as speaking to the central ground, actually, because I think, uh, in a way, that almost imbues it with too much of a political take, which I know is a strange thing to talk about when you're talking about national politics. I think it's, it's talking talking the language of ordinary working people. Mm. Often we don't even do that. Our, sometimes our, our the way we communicate to people doesn't resonate. Yeah. And... You know, we've got this history and this tradition of being very inward looking in the Labour Party and not resonating and not striking the tone of, um, you know, of the average voter. You know, there's, there's talk in the past of Mondeo Man and you showed that yeah. uh, hands up gimmick, the gimmick ad. Labour's been very poor at that, I think, over the years, not just recently, but also historically. And we've not been very strong at defending our record in power. And that's why we've often struggled, I think, in opposition um, to, to gain people's trust at the ballot box to return to Downing Street. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I totally agree with that. I think the Labour Party, you know, when we do when we do crack the code, when we do come to the centre a little, when we do start to talk about the needs of ordinary people, you know, the full employment, helping the poor, but also creating a strong fiscal, a strong fiscally responsible economy, we win. You know, I do. I don't accept this narrative that people say, you know, we are an actually conservative country. We're not. You know, when the Labour Party's in power, we dominate the political stratosphere. You know, Attlee was in power for six years. Howard Wilson was governing for, you know, nine of the 13 years. We were for, from 2064 and 79, the Labour Party was governing for 11 of those years. New Labour ran the country for 13 years. And of course, if expenses of the financial crisis were dealt with better, or if we'd gone to the country in 2007, we probably would have wiped the Tories off the map. So I think it's... You know, it's all saying, you know, do the Tories win elections or do Labour Party just constantly lose them? And these more Labour Party constantly lose them. Because when a country more or less shares your core values, fairness, justice, opportunity for all, responsibility from all, I don't think you have then a real excuse. So then, of course, we turn to the second half of the Kinnett Premiership. You have uh, the flash crash of 87, which is interest rates going to 15%. You have the poll tax, which was rioted against because it was a policy that absurd. Yeah, we will. That's a great, that's, that is basically my plan as well. That is a good idea. We'll have to do the leaders this week and then we'll have to get you back on another week and discuss core issues for the Labour Party. Um, but you had the poll tax and then, of course, John Major came in and John Major was so, very much... So, I mean, one thing I'll say about Kinnock, yeah, uh, and, and, and you know sort of my, my way of thinking on this is he was strong on showing the party realized it had to reform mm. um that it had to be credible that it had to be electable and that it had to speak to people's issues and he knew coming out of that 83 results once he was elected as party leader that the only way, oh, that, way. Was gonna, that the only way labor was going to get back into power was to do that now that that wasn't he wasn't successful in 87 he wasn't successful in 92 mm. But you only need to look at the ructions within the party in the mid 80s at militants, yeah. at the successive party conference speeches. Kinnick was serious about this and he was serious about getting the party back into power, but he knew that it was going to be a long way to get the parliamentary majority that the party needed. And we we should be very we should be very grateful, I think, to Kinnock for all for the work that he did. Uh, it was not an easy role. It was not one that he necessarily easily relished. And it was not one that he thought, um, you know, being leader was about, and rightly so. But it was a fundamental tenet of Labour showing that it was serious again and that it was a united party and that it had moved away from the internal wrangling that had dogged it throughout the 80s, the late 70s and even before then. Oh, I totally agree. I think that you couldn't have had 97 without 92. You know, Neil Kinnock's 1990 policy review, which basically got rid of nationalisation, got rid of nuclear disarmament, got rid of most of our tax and spending ideas, helped portray the Labour Party as a serious party ready to govern the country again. You know, Neil Kinnock ran for nine years, and yes, he'd been a, a traditional face, but he was very good at modernising the party. Yes, Peter Mandelson was there helping him out with our image, the red rose rather than the red flag. But our policies were different. We were far more modernised. But then you look at 92, and yes, you know, 92, 
John Major, if Mrs. Thatcher was leader in 92, the Tory party would have lost the election, right? Michael Major was the chief whip in 1990 when Michael Hestine had asked John, uh, Michael, the chief whip what to do. He said, do nothing. You'll be leader of the opposition, opposition in 18 months' time. Everybody thought Mrs. Thatcher would take them to defeat. And John Major famously, you know, he abolished the poll tax. He uh, led to Britain to victory in the first Gulf War. He had a 20% basic rate for the first five grand of income. You know, the economy was in some, it was in a deep recession, but there was some optimism. And the Labour Party was proposing a £1,300 annual tax increase. But then you had people like Ken Clark or people like Douglas Hurd, who said on the day that the Tory party were probably not going to win the election. Now, the fact they did, with their majority cut by four-fifths from 102 to just 21 seats, shows three things. First, that the Labour Party had modernised, but the public were just a bit too antsy about a Labour government just yet. Secondly, the Tory party modernisation strategy happened whilst they were in government in the same way that Johnson did with the, with the Tories in 2019 when he became Prime Minister. He did modernise the Tory party, in his view, just to the right. And thirdly, it showed that the Labour Party left have a new leadership. And that's, of course, where John Smith comes in. Now, John Smith, I think, would have been an amazing Prime Minister. If you listen to the 93 conference speech or the 93 no confidence debate or the debate on economic issues, he's a genius, John Smith. He's a hilarious debate and a great orator. But would John Smith have won a 179 seat majority in the 97 election? That's the question, isn't it? He was universally popular across the country. His death in tragic circumstances um means that he will always be remembered very fondly but with great um great sadness that he wasn't able to put his values into power um as possibly one of the greatest labor prime ministers we never had um i think it's fair to say that uh, smith was more reticent than um other shadow cabinet members about modernizing the party at that time and in particular, um, more reticent than the, the Mandelson and, and than Blair. Yeah. Um, I, I certainly think that, you know, at that time, it was entirely plausible, in fact, very likely that John Smith would have won the 97 election, given the repeated sleaze and the very um, grey nature of Tory party politics in the mid-90s. Yes. It's just a shame that he was not given the opportunity to fulfil that agenda. Um, as, as tends to happen so often in the Labour Party, and as was the case with Gateskill, we were robbed of um, potentially a fantastic Prime Minister um, only a few years before an election. Yeah, totally agree. I think John Smith, would he win a 179 seat majority? Probably not. But would the Labour Party have won four terms under John Smith and Gordon Brown once that is yes, because we've not have, we'd not have invaded Iraq, we've not have done PFI in the health service. We'd have been basically everyone says, you know, Tony Blair's like the Rolling Stones. We all love the early work. John Smith was the early work of that. Now John now, you know, John Smith was a famously pro-trade unionist. He was famously an old he served in the last Labour government uh, under James Callahan. He was a very much, and Gordon Brown, of course, had a chance there. When Gordon Brown and Tony Blair went to America to go and visit Bill Clinton after Clinton won the spectacular 1992 election victory for 12 years of Republican rule, you know, John Smith said, why are they going to do, we don't need all this Clinton stuff. We don't need any more boat rocking. You always refer to modernization as boat rocking. Um, 
But that was interesting because if you look at the Blair era, you do see the Clinton reforms in the Democrats going into the Labour Party, you know, tough on crime, uh, welfare to work ideas, you know, not be really sort of like on our old sacred beliefs, trying to get business into the into what the centre-left progressive party, like Clinton with the Democrats, Tony Blair brought business people into the Labour Party. So do you think that if you look at the, I'm talking about the 94 to 97 era within Tony Blair, mm. that there was a very much an emulation of what President Clinton had tried to do. You know, the phrase, you know, the era of big centralised government, you know, Blair wants to do devolution, he rallying, he said, the era of big centralised government is over, which was pretty much a copyright on when Clinton is 96 state of the union said the era of big government is over. So Without, without a shadow of a doubt, Dowd, I mean, um, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. Um, and that's exactly what New Labour did off the back of the Democrats win in 92. Um, you know, third wave politics that echoed um, Clinton's strategy uh, to get into the White House. But I think also there were some very um, totemic uh, sort of slogans that, that, that Blair was, was adept at using. I mean, you talked earlier about communicating your policy and your beliefs. You know, they resonate down the ages, tough on crime, tough for the causes of crime, education, education, education. And, and the card with the five policy pledges, yes. um, all examples of how the party had taken, taken a step back and thought about how it conveyed its message to the electorate and how that was important. Yeah. I'm somewhat loath to use the term modernization because it's charged within the Labour Party and politics more broadly. But again, it speaks to the fact that since the 80s, Britain had moved on economically, socially, culturally. Yeah. And there was a risk that the Labour Party didn't move with the times. Um, and that was that was what was so important going into that 97 election, that Labour channeled the zeitgeist of the era. Oh. And you saw that in the, in the early part of that first Blair government, Cool Britannia, um, the pop stars in Downing Street, yeah. the government being in tune with the electorate that's not to say that Labour government got everything right because I don't think it did I think there were many uh, many a failure um but it was more with the national mood like you couldn't for example you could easily envision Tony Blair meeting Noel Gallagher at the Brit Awards you couldn't see Gordon Brown doing that you definitely couldn't see John Smith doing that I mean John Smith at the Brit Awards we'd all have a good chuckle about that but you know I think if you look at the leadership of like Alistair Campbell, Peter Mandelson, they had changed the media image of the Labour Party. Yeah, we looked ease with modernity. We looked, we had people like Kevin Spacey. I mean, talk about the Downing Street um, party when the Labour Party won. We invited like Noel Gallagher, Kevin Spacey, etc., into Number Ten Downing Street. It was one of those oasis. We invited them into Number Ten Downing Street. I mean, it was showing modernity, but I think there's a bit of an issue where politics and culture merged together and I think that's not the role for politics the role for politics is to be different and there are those who say well if you have the right messenger you'll get more people onto your cause which I think is a perfectly legitimate point of view but ultimately if politics wants to inspire people again if you want to get political conversations or political debating to inspire inspire people you've got to fight it on your own terms. Why were people like Clement Attlee so successful? Why is Mrs. Thatcher so successful? Because they acknowledge, they're trying to drag people, instead of trying to go to the other person's consensus, establish your own thesis. 
So I think whilst I do praise Tony Blair humongously, I called him the dear leader before in the early part of the podcast, and I praise Alistair Campbell most heavily, that sometimes the Labour Party had devalued politics. The new Labour sometimes devalued politics shot in 2001, where even though we had the minimum wage, the handgun ban, peace in Northern Ireland, peace in Kosovo, peace in Sierra Leone, the 10% tax rate, the winter fuel allowance, you know, freedom of information. We had the Scottish and Welsh Parliament, you know, a list of genuine accomplishments that we had done massive achievements for them. You know, the ban on landmines, cutting VAT on fuel bills, the ban on GCHQ trade union membership, real accomplishments. And yet by 2001, everyone said, well, that's just spin. That's just spin, isn't it? No, 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 no. These are policies. And sometimes media management had obstructed what was genuine government achievements in that first term, in my view. Yeah, there's absolutely no doubt about that. I think also one of the things in the in the first Blair government was almost the timidity in the first couple of years on um, on the public finances. You know, Labour went into that election again, like I said, yeah. um, wary that it had to gain people's trust to manage their money after 18 years in opposition. Um, Notwithstanding the fact that all the polls were pointing in one direction, uh, the Labour government of the first couple of years of that uh, of that ninety seven to two thousand and one term was very reluctant to be bolder in yeah. the public finances. Um, it was right. Clear social reforms. You've mentioned some of them. Yes. Clear legacy, even in that first government, not least with. Um, Good Friday agreements uh, and Northern Ireland. Um, but I think in hindsight, uh, I, and I think in fairness, um, members of that cabinet would think the same. Um, they should have seized the opportunity to be bolder um, with the public finances. I think- uh, and, you know, I agree with you because I think there, can- there, was, there was, go on. No, I think you're right, because even though, you know, Ken Clark said, you know, the Tories were mad and the economy is true, but in 97, if you look at the polling, Labour were ahead on every issue except one, the economy. The Tory party had run, well, an exceptionally dreadful economy because they were stuck with boom and bust economics. But Ken Clark was a trusted figure. So Gordon Brown said, you know, we're not going to we're not going to raise the top or basic rate of income tax for five years. We're not going to, for example, deviate from Tory spending plans for three years. And that, in effect, while she had to bring that Bank of England independence, which was a brilliant, 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 brilliant idea, you know, the Labour Party, when you had the 1999 uh, flu outbreak, which had seen the NHS ground to a halt, we couldn't invest more money into it in that winter because we promised to be fiscally responsible. Now, yes, we had the budget surplus, and I'm a big believer in budget surpluses rather than deficit spending, but there is that feeling, isn't it, that we in that first term we had the we had a one hundred and seat majority. The Tory party, yes, William Hague was a fantastic debater at PMQs, but they spent four years not knowing what they stood for. We could have done a lot more actually in that first term. But yeah, but if you look at and that's why of course the turnout dropped from seventy one to fifty nine percent. If you look at 2000, 2001, 2003, 2001, 2005, right, you have. Massive reductions in national health service waiting lists. I think I have a graphic on Instagram. I'm getting it up on my Insta profile, which is a graph showing the Labour Party waiting lists under the Labour government, the waiting times in the NH- for NHS treatment under the Labour Party. It's an amazing achievement. Where is it? There it is. Right. So 
you know, we came to power, the average wait for operation of the Delta GPT operating theater was 93 weeks. By 2005, that fig- 2006, the figure was 18 weeks. You know, that was a massive achievement. The fact that we doubled education spending in one decade and we got from 45% kids getting five good GCSEs to 80% kids getting five good GCSEs. The fact that poverty had come slashing down the Labour government. So, I mean, part of poverty in the Labour Party government. You know, that, a lot of those... We don't part- talk about this enough, Dowd, anymore. No, we, we don't. talk about what a Labour Party in power has achieved. Yeah. And that's, I think, a weakness. Um, well, I totally even... Even even five years after uh, Labour was last in power at the 2015 election, um, there were people who were reticent to talk about Labour's track record in government. And I'm Miliband in the uh, part of the podcast. Yeah, I, I think you're showing something on education spending. That's education spending. If you look at that, you look at 2005, you know, there we are, £75 billion. We increased £30 billion spending in the course of the second term of the Labour government. Now, my point about this is very simple. The second term, where we hired more doctors and nurses, we hired more teachers and teaching assistants, we had the BSF programme, which was Building Schools for the Future programme, Dr Gordon Randy was Chancellor. That was overshadowed because Tony Blair went to war with Iraq. And I think with the Iraq war, first of all, we've never explained it properly why we did it. The narrative with Iraq, and I'm going to be very delicate about this, is that we went into another country illegally and destabilised it. That forgets that Saddam Hussein, 1991, throughout the 1980s, was having a war with Iran. In 1991, he'd invaded Kuwait without any authority. That in 1993, he used chemical weapons against his own people. That in 1997, we used airstrikes in Iraq. That in 1999, the sanctions were actually working. That in 2001, there was the worst disaster the world ever seen. And there are those who say, well, first of all, Iraq had anything to do with 9-11, which is absolutely correct. And second of all, why couldn't you have done it earlier? Why do you have to do it now? And I think that's a perfect thesis. But the fact is that Tony Blair... And Jack Straw, and you know, they had forgot to understand the opposition. You know, there were a million and a half people on that march against the war in Iraq. Now, not they were not all Socialist Workers Party revolutionary pacifists. They weren't. They were most of them were sensible middle middle class people who just who was because everyone forgets that everybody supported the war in Afghanistan. Everybody supported the war in Kosovo in Sierra Leone. It was. The illegality and the fact it was being done by a man who was obscenely had an obscene deficit deficit in intelligence, George W. Bush. Now, the the biggest thing in the Iraq War was that they said, you know, the motion, the 18th of March 2003, was that you know this House responds to take Iraq on Iraq on the basis of weapons of mass destruction that Saddam Hussein possesses. And that's why, of course, all Tory MPs voted for the war except Ken Clark and Michael Patillo, which everyone forgets. The Tories walked hand in hand with Tony Blair to go and vote for the war, and there were 150 Labour MPs that both were opposed to the war. But do you think that our failure to communicate Iraq, or our fail, was it was it? Let me put it this way: Why has Iraq overshadowed New Labour so badly? Well, it, it was the greatest. It was the greatest foreign policy disaster since Suez. Um, let's 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 make no mistake. You know, it, it was a complete and utter failure of intelligence, yeah. of government, and of policy. Of course, it was a terrible mistake. Um, 
why has it overshadowed politics? Why has it overshadowed Labour politics so much? No, um, I'm not in government. Why has the why is it it will look at our 13 years and the, the quickest thing I remember is we went to war with Iraq. Why has Iraq overshadowed all of our accomplishments? Because it's such a systemic issue. Because so many people made the ultimate sacrifice. Because troops weren't in there just in 2003. You know, if we said the British troops were going in to deal with weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. Yet once those weapons have been found, not been found, I should say. Yeah. The mandate changed. Um, and because, because you, because I think, as you said, yeah, and I remember it very clearly at the time, the very significant public anger that was felt prior to the invasion, um, which mobilized a million people on the streets. You know, there was very clear public opposition even before the 18th of March, which was the first day that cruise missiles hit targets in Baghdad. Yes. And I think, you know, the government didn't do a very good job of also putting its hands up and admitting it got it wrong, you know? Yeah, I agree. Uh, there were no weapons of mass destruction. The intelligence was dodgy. Um well, I mean, and when that was when that was discovered to be the case, yes, the mission changed. It evolved beyond anything that was originally agreed at the time. And I think the issue with Iraq was that it prevented the progress in Afghanistan. Everyone forgets, two thousand and two, Afghanistan was actually being rebuilt, but all the resources in the Afghan rebuild was going to Iraq. But I think the issue with the um, with our focus on Iraq, is that we always slate Tony Blair. Now, of course, Tony Blair must take his portion of the blame for lying to the British public about weapons of mass destruction never was, but there have been inquiries that have cleared him. Hudson cleared him, Butler cleared him, uh, Chilcock cleared him. And why we as Labour Party people on centre-left have never gone after George Bush when mm. he, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, George Tennant, yes openly told lies you know you know when cheney was hearing the intelligence in 2002 he was told by the cia director george tennant you know don't listen to the unfiltered intelligence because most of that stuff is crap his own words right and they used a lot of that unfiltered intelligence in the statement that colin powell gave to the united nations so the intelligence yeah. was faulty because we had dick cheney running the operation and george I'll, was being you know over his head i'll tell you why it's it's a cultural it's a cultural, um, certainly on the left, there's a cultural view that we like to kick our own, we like to kick ourselves or our own leaders um, after we've left power and we don't champion their achievements. Like I said earlier, you know, we've seen this over the years recently. Mm. Um, uh, Iraq, no doubt, still hangs um, over British foreign policy decision making. And other countries have had disastrous foreign policy interventions that have hung over their decision making for decades to come. But what we do, what we can say is that Iraq, notwithstanding, certainly in the first term of government, Tony Blair uh, and, and New Labour had a, had a very strong track record oh, yeah. in, in Kosovo, in Sierra Leone, and also in bringing peace to the island of Ireland. Oh, yes. and, and those are things that we should not forget and that we should always champion. And we should, and you know, the Tories, they don't beat themselves up for sewers. 
The Tories don't beat themselves up for Yom Kippur. They don't beat themselves up because Mrs. Thatcher sang the Belgrano, even though the Belgrano was shipping back. They don't beat themselves up because Mrs. Thatcher allowed British bases to be used to bomb Libya without even the consent of the British government. They don't beat themselves up for the fact that David Cameron turned Libya into an absolute dump because he had refused to put troops and airstrikes in. And when Colonel Gaddafi was allowed, I was basically t- taken out, you know, off with him. Libya is now turned into a slave market. The Tories don't beat themselves up for Syria. They don't beat themselves up for the Afghanistan, which Tom Tugendhat called the worst foreign policy disaster since Suez. But we forget that we were part of World War II. Forget that we did Korea. Forget that we didn't go into Vietnam. Forget that, you know, from Sierra Leone to Kosovo to Afghanistan, we've had massive foreign policy victories, right? And we just talk about the Iraq war. And of course, when we won our third term, which everybody forgets, well, not everybody, but you know what I mean, that it's also forgotten that two years after the war, the Labour Party won a majority of 66, 356 seats, to the Tories, 198. We crushed the Tories again. And then, of course, Tony Blair went very much to the right, focused on things like PF, allowing private providers in the health service, academies, etc. Um, then there was the coup. Well, the, f- the coup that never was, with Gordon Brown getting his troops ready for where those ministers resigned in 2006, and Gordon wanted the date for Tony to go. Then Tony resigned. I mean, I do believe that whilst Gordon Brown is probably the greatest economic mind since Dennis Healy and probably one of the greatest of all time, that Labour government could have been so much better if Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were not fighting. Or put it this way, if Gordon Brown had been allowed to run for the leadership or had become leader in 94, as everybody said he was before Tony Blair in 94, John Smith died, would that Labour government have been far more successful in terms of the deliverance of policy? Well, it certainly would have been if they, if if we hadn't had Blair and Brown uh, taking chunks out of each other every other week, um, and that played itself out in the papers. Much as you were saying earlier that you know New, New Labour's politics was almost, um, well, certainly sometimes was clouded by by the perception of spin that accompanied it. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know, obviously by this point, two thousand seven, it was when Blair um, stood down. Um, and, and and Brown took up the premiership. He'd been Chancellor for ten years, mm-hmm. and you know if you read the memoirs, if you you know look at Mandelson or Campbell's writings as well, even from the off, Brown had pin fizzing about not winning uh, the leadership in 1994, and. There was that sense that they were always a strong team, but there was almost always that creative friction between the two of them that, in a way, undermined the unity of Chancellor and Prime Minister. I agree with uh, that. If you look at Bank of England independence, which basically gave us 10 years of economic growth, that was because Tony and Gordon worked together. If you look at the winter fuel allowance, the EMA, you know, that was because Tony and Gordon were both. The massive investment in schools and hospitals. Yes, you had Gordon Brown screaming and saying, You stole my fucking budget when Tony Blair went on the David Frost program and said, You know, we're going to uh, put health service funding to the EU average. And Gordon had a bit of a crossness about that. But I think it was the briefing in each other. You know, had Tony Blair saying Gordon Brown was psychologically flawed. Gordon Brown can never become prime minister. You know, when Gordon Brown got married and got engaged to um, his wife, he didn't actually tell Tony Blair the day before the engagement. Um, there were stories where Alistair Campbell was knowingly slagging off Gordon Brown. Charlie Whelan was knowingly slagging off Tony Blair. Mm. But I think the issue with the Blair-Brown dominance was that 
a lot of good Labour ministers were sort of overlooked. You know, you had Alan Milburn, you had John Reid, you had David Blunkett, you had Charles Clark, you had Jack Straw, you know, outstanding minds. And yes, Tony and God, yes, you had Planet Gordon and Planet Tony, which were these obscenely brilliant, talented people who both deserve a massive credit for the Labour government. But a lot of the people in that Labour government, in, especially in the early part, could never become leader because Tony and Gordon dominated that period so effectively. I think also one, one of the things that's quite striking as well is the vacuum that they they left behind. So after the 2010 election, I think there was a clear vacuum of political leadership within the wider Labour Party. Um, you think of, you know, there are a number of reasons for that, not least the 2009 expenses scandal, which resulted in lots of members of Parliament rightly leaving oh, uh, in 2010 but also um a lot of a lot of mps had decided before then you know that they they'd serve their time in parliament 13 years of a labor government it was time to hang up their boots and by virtue of that domination of you know two big beasts having run a labor government for 13 years mm. there had been very little space for uh, emerging talent and you had your David Miliband's and Ed Miliband's and you, you had Ballses yeah. but it was very constrained as to who could progress within that government and there was almost I think a like I said a political vacuum that, that occurred when Labour came into opposition in 2010. Yeah I agree with that and I think if you look at the Blair Brown years you know you had Gordon Brown from 2007 you had uh, the first 100 days, you had the Glasgow Airport terrorist attack, you had the floods in Cumbria, you had the Northern Rock running, or the Bank of Northern Rock running um, in 2007. And every crisis in the first 100 days, Gordon Brown dealt with it superbly. You know, David Cameron was fighting on grammar schools, he was fighting on tax reform, and Gordon Brown was unifying the country. Then came September when there was bickering about whether or not to have an election. Now, of course, the Labour Party had been left pretty much bankrupt because of the Cash for Honours scandal, where we'd apparently we'd loaned money for peerages, which proved to be utter nonsense, but we were forced to pay it all back to Michael Levy, etc. But there was talk of going to the country. I genuinely believe that if Gordon Brown had gone to the country in 2007, in September, not October, but September, he'd have walked it. And the reason he didn't go was because David Cameron gave an amazing off-the-no-notes conference speech in 2007. George Osborne famously promised to raise inheritance tax for a million pounds, tailoring that to the middle-class uh, Middle England voters. And then, of course, the polls flipped from 14 points ahead to neck and neck. And then Gordon Brown bottled the election and looked indecisive. And from then on in, the premiership for Gordon Brown never really recovered. Agreed. Um, and that takes us on very nicely onto the next Labour leader, Ed Miliband. Ed. Ed, was it? I mean, I'm, I'm going to try and be polite, but I'm going to stick it to him because the fact is this we won 258 seats in 2010. David Cameron did not win a majority in 2010. We dealt with the financial crisis masterfully. Yeah, no problem. We're going to quickly go for this as fast as we can. Ed Miliband, quite literally, destroyed our record by not defending it. He had concluded that people were apathetic with Labour and therefore left the Labour Party and therefore went for the Conservative Liberal Democrats. 
and he allowed the Tory party to create a narrative. Remember that phrase, the mess we inherited? That was a key phrase the Tory party used, the long-term economic, long-term economic plan with the Conservatives, and remember the mess we inherited from the Labour Party. Never mind the fact that Tories took him into a double-dip recession that shoved us back in recession in 2012. The Labour Party, I do not think, for the last decade, and we're going to merge the Corbyn and Miller-Bandera into this, have not been a credible opposition at all. Okay, Jeremy shifted the politics to the left from the centre-right vision of NHS privatisation tax cuts to more nationalisation and, po- and poverty, look, uh, analysing the poverty in this country. But Ed Miliband did not defend the Labour government and Jeremy Corbyn did not defend the Labour government. And that is why the Labour Party, in my view, in the same way that Tony Benn didn't defend the Labour government in the 80s, is the same reason we've been out of power now for 12 years, because people have forgotten or do not really remember what we actually did. Yeah, agreed with that. I mean, there's been so many times over the last few years where that's been the case. And I think, you know, one of the things that's been very telling as well is that we've struggled to have the answers or to have the debates about some of the key issues of the day that people raise on the doorstep. So the rise of UKIP in the run up to 2015 was largely as a result of discussion about immigration. You had the famous controls on immigration 2015 manifesto mug that I think was also on the infamous Edstone. And Labour's message on immigration has been wishy-washy at best over the recent years. Now, suffice to say, voters' concerns about immigration were one of the main drivers behind the referendum results in 2016. Mm. Um, And we saw the Tories campaigning on that message of um, taking back control of our laws, taking back control of our money, taking back control of our borders, which we all know is complete and utter nonsense, not least as has been demonstrated with the Rwanda deal this week. Um, But Labour has not been able to provide a clear narrative on some of these really deep-seated issues that voters bring up. Immigration is one of them, as I said, but there's many others. And the worry that I have as we increasingly face ourselves with a fluid um, electorate is once they voted Conservative or once the Labour Party has failed to defend its record in power, that they struggle to come back to us. I agree with that. And I think if you look at the rise of UKIP, that was not... Be- I mean, some of it's because of immigration. I think that's partly the answer, but I think it's partly because it's the same reason Donald Trump got elected, the same reason Brexit happened, was because it was white, working-class people who had been screwed by Mrs Thatcher and Ronald Reagan in the 80s, and the Clinton-Blair agenda, whilst it did a lot of good, didn't actually address the concerns of the blue-collar industries, of the manufacturing, the factory, the working-class shops, etc., and we had stopped listening to the working class. And that was a big issue for the Labour Party. 
you know, the UKIP rise was immigration. If you look at immigration, we should have said, listen, when we were in government, we had the Migrant Impact Fund, which was a £2 billion fund, which is anybody who lost their business due to the undercutting of immigration, the local councils provided them with enough money to set up a new business in a less competitive area, and therefore they could not lose their livelihood. Genius idea. And who scrapped that? Over oh, Tories did in 2010, right? The fact is, we didn't want to address those issues because we forgot to we forgot how to talk to voters in Bishop Auckland, in Don Valley, in Batley and Spurn, in Bolton West. And we become, you know, the phrase the London centric had applied to Labour in 2015 because we'd forgotten to understand that when people talk about immigration, they're not saying we don't want immigrants to come here. Not even that they're, what they're saying is, listen, it's all well and good. You want European doctors to come work in the NHS. That's fine. But why then would you want to get rid of the National Health Service nurses bursary that allows someone in the council estate to become a nurse as well? You know, and we'd start looking at it from those parameters. We looked at conversation of racial division. Somehow people opposed immigration and racism, which is, of course, complete nonsense in any way, shape or form. But I think especially within the Corbyn era, that was a big issue in the Corbyn era, was the Labour Party had become a middle class pressure group that whilst Jeremy Corbyn, some of his ideas were very much for the working class, that the Labour Party had stopped communicating to the working class, and especially over Brexit. You know, in 2019, if our position had been, look, we're leaving, that's depressing, but we are leaving. Now we're going to ensure we leave on single market in custom union terms, so we have free trade and we keep our trade deals, and therefore we don't have mass unemployment queues at Dover and a massive uh, economic uh, platform, a plot hole. Mm. A lot of people could have got behind that. But in South position was in 2019, well, we'll, no, we'll we'll do a Harold Wilson. We'll renegotiate a deal and have another referendum, which was the best, the worst of both worlds. Mm. And that's the failure in the Corbyn leadership was the Labour Party, in the same way with Michael Foote, you had two brilliant, articulate, well-intentioned socialists had forgotten that whilst the left, whilst we are we are a centre left party, and both of those words have meaning. And I think in the late part of the Tony Blair years, he'd forgotten we're a centre left party, and focused too much on the centre rather than left. And Jeremy Corbyn is focused too much on the left rather than centre. That's a very it's a very good way of putting it. Um, I think you know Jeremy Corbyn's success in the twenty fifteen election was in a way, um, tied to that point I was making slightly earlier about the lack of political depth in the party after the Blair-Brown era. Um, that, uh, you know, in a way, um, and we're sort of struggling with this in the Labour Party at the moment, there is that lack of um, institutional knowledge uh, that goes back to, um, back to Labour's time in government. And you know, champions the successes that we had. Um, did you want to talk about Keir Starmer a little bit? I'll talk about Keir Starmer now, then we're going to have to finish this off. Obviously, I'm going to invite you back onto a second and so the podcast of lay party policy. But I think if we look at Keir Starmer, Keir Starmer, in my view, is, of course, the lay party leader who's radically changed all this. You know, Keir Starmer spent the conversation 2021 praising the Labour government. If you went to the Manchester event, he was using Blairite rhetoric. And I think that if you look at... I'll look at Keir Starmer for this one perspective because I know we've got to wrap up, because I've got a diary and you've got to go. If you look at the next election, 2023, 24, whenever it comes, you're going to have Johnson, who has messed up COVID, 
He's messed up the cost of living crisis. He's pretty much messed up Ukraine. And he's charismatic. Keir Starmer, the public, in my view, haven't come to a full opinion on Keir yet, but they know three things. First of all, he says what he means and he means what he says. Second of all, he's not Jeremy Corbyn. He's probably centre as much as writer Jeremy Corbyn. And third of all, whilst he doesn't give a Tony Blair 97 vibe, he certainly has the articulacy of Blair Wright Retro. You'd be like Wes Streeting, Yvette Cooper, Rachel Reeves, who are far better. You know, the shadow cabinet under Kia this time round is far more effective than, say, the cabinet 12 months ago. That because the Labour Party has a better shadow cabinet now, along with a much better leader, that our package, as long as we can get our policies to a centre-left position, the next election, in my view, is totally winnable. So I think Keir's had it. Keir's had a difficult time uh, being leader um, when he has. We've got to remember that he was elected in April 2020, just at the start of the pandemic. Yep. And not only have these been very unusual times um, for all of us, let alone a high-profile politician, it's also, I think, in a way, been quite difficult for him to make his mark on the electorates. Ordinarily, it's very difficult for an opposition leader, anyway. And my usual sense is it takes a couple of years for them to really make an impression. Uh, I think Starm has been stifled somewhat by the pandemic because he's not been able to get out and about as much as might ordinarily be the case. I know he had a tour around the country last year in the summer. I expect to be doing something similar this year. What I think he, I think he has to do a couple of things. I think, I mean, he has he has made significant progress in changing the party for the better. I think um, in a number of ways, um, but I'll be brief. I think. He needs to do a couple of things to really boost Labour's profile in the run-up to the general. One is he needs to reveal who Starmer is as a person, not just as a politician. What a lot of people like is that they feel they have a connection with their prospective prime minister or their prime minister. Um, Starmer as a person needs to come out of his shell a bit more and show people who he is beyond the politics. In a way, Ed Miliband has done this now that he's no longer leader of the Labour Party. Oh, yes. He feels more comfortable in his skin and more at ease with himself as a person. Starmer's yet to do that. Secondly, I think he needs to anchor his policy platform and messaging in the language of that 2021 Brighton Conference speech, talking about security, talking about prosperity. Um. That seems to have been somewhat mixed since then. The speech was very well received, both in the conference hall, but also in the press, more broadly in the country. I think there needs to be a consistency of messaging with Starmer and party comms going forward. Yeah. I think, and thirdly, you know, it'll be a clear litmus test what happens in the local elections next month. Yes. And the Telegraph was reporting that there may be up to 700 Tory seats that are lost. Um, to what extent that is um, uh, management managing expectations on the Tory part, I do not know. But I do think that we ought to see a sizable number of Tory seats coming over to Labour. People are fed up, the cost of living crisis, being lied to by the Chancellor, by the Prime Minister. Um, and, you know, as I've, I've discussed with you many a time, yeah. The failure of the Conservative government to really deliver on any domestic policy initiative of, of magnitude. 
um, has meant that people continue to really feel that they're no better off than they were before 2010. And rightly so, when you look at real term wage cuts and um, rampant inflation. Well, I agree now, so spot on 100%. I think that the fact is we right now have an opening with the public because of the cost of living, because of Partygate, we have an opening where the public are willing to listen to us. Now, if and I'll be brief about this, because we've got to sign off, but the, the Labour Party now, in the next two years, cannot spend next year saying the Tory party has been a miserable failure. They have been a miserable failure. You know, we've had weak economic growth. We've not balanced the books in 12 years. We've not been running rampant inflation. Now we're nearly inflation up to 10% by the end of the year. You know, we have a Johnson who's a pathological liar. We have Liz Truss who's stuck up. But we can't run it on that. We have to run it on the 97 pledge card. What are the five key priorities for the next Labour government? Investing eight billion to NHS through national insurance, seven billion in the state education system through the graduate levy, 12 billion windfall tax to get the 1.6 million unemployed off welfare and into work, balancing the books within five years through reductions in inflation and control public spending outside the health, education, defence and foreign aid, and fifth, not raising the headline rates of income tax for five years. Five key policies that everyone can understand that it's key res- resonating to Labour Party people across the country. I think Keir is gradually doing that, but he needs to focus more. Now, first of all, he's an attack dog, someone whose day and night job it is to stick it to, to Johnson, stick it to Trust, stick it to Sunak every day. But he also needs someone, and Keir or Ed Miliband or West Street or Rachel Rees or Vet Cooper do the jobs quite well at the moment, is to explain our policies. What's our solution to cost of living? What's our solution to the health service backlog? What's our solution to the education crisis? What's our solution to the housing crisis? If we can address these issues, make it about the issues, not about the European Union or Johnson, I think we've got a chance of walking it next time. It goes back to our values. Anyway, go on, Phil. Politics is the language of priorities. Labour needs to work out what it will be going into the next election and set those out well ahead of time. Here, 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 here. Well, this isn't, hasn't gone as planned, but it sure as hell been informative. It sure as hell been informative. So, here's what we're going to do. In a fortnight's time, I'm going to probably reconvene afterward because me, James, and Michael are going to do a whole episode basically destroying the government on party game we're going to look at it from the start to the end and dismantle all their claims i think in two weeks time we're going to have to we'll do another episode me and james will be able to, we're going to discuss lay party issues if you'd like to come on for that if, you, if you've got time we can discuss the issues of the labor party our views on health welfare tax reform defense etc and look at it from that perspective as you were on podcast you more than free to do that i'll let you know all right, jolly good. All Cheers, right, Dad. it's an absolute pleasure interviewing you, mate. Thanks a lot. No problem. Take care, Bye mate. Oh, there we go. See ya.